where people don't have some appreciation for Van Til, they're not going to be strong, systematic theologians. You know, I like the way I would put it. Van Til, more than anyone else, has shaped my theological epistemology. Westminster Media presents Word and Spirit, a podcast study of the life and theology of Richard B. Gaffin, Jr. I'm your host, Nate Shannon, and in this show, we'll hear about the intersection of theology and life and the changing of hearts and minds and how one life dedicated to exploring the truth can guide others down ancient paths to see our Redeemer, Christ Jesus, in word and spirit. How do we know what we know? And how can we be certain that what we think we know is true? For most of us, these are questions that we take for granted each moment of the day. Perhaps they're fun to talk about late at night in a college dorm room, but on the surface, they don't seem to make much difference in our jobs or our relationships or in how we view ourselves. That is, until something goes wrong. Then everything you thought you knew to be true, that certainty that you took for granted, is thrown into doubt. And so, in a field like theology, epistemology, or the study of the nature of knowledge, is tremendously important. Not only because the very existence of God is debated, not only because the possibility of the knowledge of God must be addressed in a systematic manner, but because the conclusions we make about God and about the security of our knowledge of Him should and do matter for our jobs, our relationships, and for how we view ourselves. Although there have been plenty of sophisticated discussions concerning the nature and limits of human knowledge throughout history, Cartesian doubt, the European Enlightenment, and the Kantian turn to the subject brought the question of what we know to be true to the forefront of modern thought and life. In following generations, the issue of objectivity and subjectivity in knowledge would become a veritable battlefield for theologians and philosophers on which both previous ideas we had taken for granted would be scrutinized and the advent of new theories would be celebrated. In 1987, Dr. Richard B. Gaffin Jr. spoke at the funeral for one of the leading intellectual figures in the epistemological debates and discussions of the 20th century. For Gaffin and many others, Cornelius Van Til's striking arguments for a distinctively Christian view of knowledge and a reformed view of defending the Christian faith were not only an intellectual inspiration, but a pathway to deeper understanding of God's self-revelation to mankind. As you know, uh, Dick preached at uh, Van Til's funeral, uh, considered him a spiritual father, a mentor. Here is Bill Edgar, Emeritus Professor of Apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary. But um, yeah, I saw them interact uh, a lot. And then um, Gaffin would always defend Van Til. Van Til had been both a spiritual and an intellectual mentor to Gaffin, in the same way that Gerhardus Voss had been a mentor to Van Til. 
Van Til had even had the solemn honor of participating at Voss's funeral service as Gaffin had at Van Til's. Van Til's influence on Gaffin's theology can be seen clearly in the way Gaffin honored Van Til as friends gathered to mourn him, first at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church and again at Westminster Seminary. On both occasions, Gaffin focused on scripture passages concerning the resurrection of Christ. It was a fitting theme for a Christian funeral, and it honored Cornelius Van Til's central thesis, one which Gaffin would defend in print eight years later with the article, Some Epistemological Reflections on 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16. So, Gaffin on epistemology. Well, I think uh, one of the articles in, in your book, um, I think, says it better than I could. Gaffin's exegesis of 1 Corinthians 2 and of uh, Paul's, you know, epistemology, such as it is in his various passages, uh, is exactly what Van Til said, uh, save, as he would admit, Van Til did not do the exegetical work, or if he did, he just didn't tell us about it. Over the course of his career, Van Til had come under criticism for not doing enough to demonstrate his theses from Scripture. In this essay, Gaffin addresses those criticisms and provides exegetical support for several key emphases in Van Til's epistemology. Gaffin argues that Christ, in his death and resurrection, was Paul's ultimate epistemic commitment. That means that the wisdom God imparts to believers is Christ-centered, age-to-come wisdom, the kind that rulers of the here and now can only see as foolishness. For Gaffin, then, Van Til had correctly understood the nature of the antithesis between belief and unbelief. Believers and unbelievers belong to two different universes of discourse. There is no knowledge of God, no natural theology, that can reduce the eschatological void that separates the unbeliever from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is no common rational ground existing between the believer and the unbeliever to build towards the truth of the gospel. Yeah, that's the brilliance, I think, of this particular essay. Here's Danny Schrock, pastor of Bethel Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Wheaton, Illinois. Is how it really makes inescapably clear the connection between Paul's eschatology and this way of thinking about epistemology uh, by, by honing in on this text, this really key text in 1 Corinthians 2 that shows how the believer's approach to everything, absolutely everything, is fundamentally different than the non-believer. Um, that you can't you can't put your finger on something in the world that you as a believer are are not going to think about and reason about and fundamentally know in a different way uh, because of the fact that you have the mind of Christ, that you have the, the spirit. The risen Christ has given to you, residing in you, shaping your thought and your view of the world. 
This epistemic commitment to the resurrected Christ had far-reaching implications for the field of theology, implications that are seen in the way that Gaffin was able to bridge the biblical and systematic studies at Westminster, as Van Til had occasionally forayed from apologetics into systematics. Gaffin took the opportunity to propose a constructive solution to the poorly understood relationship between biblical theology and systematic theology. On the one hand, biblical theology, when separated from systematic theology, would be left vulnerable to modernist historicism. That is, without the controlling help of dogmatic formulation affirming the unity of revelation, the Bible would seem to be comprised of any number of divergent and competing theologies. On the other hand, Gaffin maintained that systematic theology, when detached from biblical theology, loses its biblical lifeblood and drifts into non-binding speculation, nothing more than the arbitrary theological reflections of one person or another. In his essay, Systematic Theology and Biblical Theology, Gaffin defends a healthy interdependence of biblical and systematic theology, an interdependence which in fact permeates all of his published writing and teaching. That integration of biblical theology into systematics that's so um, characteristic of Gaffin um, as a student of John Murray, right, where you, you have systematics very purposefully appropriating the discipline of biblical theology and therefore appropriating uh, what biblical theology in the last 20th century in its in its best form, I would argue, in uh, the Vossian tradition has recognized about Paul's theology. It's it's just the way that eschatology shapes its warp and woof. Like Van Til before him, Gaffin believed that this epistemic commitment to the resurrected Christ of a redemptive historical revelation was the foundation for a properly biblical defense of Christian orthodoxy and for its practical application. It gave teeth, in other words, to Gaffin's defense of Scripture as the Word of God in later debates over the inerrancy of Scripture and was the heart of essays such as The Usefulness of the Cross or Theonomy and Eschatology that encourage Christians' faith and perseverance in their professional and personal lives and in times of suffering. To learn more, I sat down with David Filson, pastor of theology and discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. I like to tell people, you know, that it's C.S. Lewis who makes me want to believe the Christian worldview is true. You know, Lewis's idea of Zinzuk, that idea of that, that, that feeling of longing, that the feeling of which itself is delicious, the idea of Zinzuk and longing for joy, etc. It's, it's C.S. Lewis who makes me want to believe the Christian worldview is true. Um, you know, 1898 to 1963. It's Jonathan Edwards, 1703 to 58, who gives me an example of somebody who preached the Christian worldview thoroughgoingly, but it's Cornelius Van Til uh, who makes it intellectually untenable that I can possibly doubt the Christian worldview. And so here's why I think this is important for preaching, pastoral counseling, evangelism, etc., is that we are not, in our preaching or in our counseling, urging someone in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their sufferings, etc., to buy into something that is highly likely true. We are not preaching or counseling 
someone to cling to something that is probably so. And I'm going to tell you, man, in my pastoral work as a preacher, as I mean, I do a lot of work with teenagers. Um, you know, I work with teenagers. I work with Alzheimer's patients you know, on any given week. And I'm, I'm, the Lord has given me the, the blessing of a pretty wide range of walking with people in their various struggles and trials. And I'm telling you, man, an, an epistemology that equips me with a, a properly biblically grounded certainty held in epistemic humility is everything to me because if, if say we're in pastoral counseling, we have something that is absolutely unavoidably necessarily true. As Van Til says, you know, the absolute, the only proof of the Christian faith is that apart from it, you can't prove anything at all. You know, it's similar to what Lewis says, C.S. Lewis, who's, who was not, you know, reformed or a presuppositionalist, but but he was happily inconsistent at points when he said, you know, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not just because I see it, but by it, I see everything else, right? There's a certain covenantal, uh, you know, veneer uh, to, or flavor to that, I think. And so apart from Christianity, the Christian worldview being true, you can't account for anything. And so I'm going to tell you on, on a technical level, uh, if, if you consider our uh, Principium Ascendi, the triune God of the Bible, and our Principium Cognoscendi Externum, the Bible of the triune God, or our starting point for being, the triune God of the Bible, and our starting point for knowing or cognition external to us, there's that revelational necessity, the Bible of the triune God, apart from uh, those Principia, we can't account for the requisites of intelligibility or reality as we experience it. And reality as we experience it is really, really hard. Right. I'm sitting literally seven miles away from where this spring um, a terrorist marched, blew the doors off of a of a fellow a sister PCA church and uh, shot adults and, and little children. You know, you all know as 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 those who are engaged in pastoral work and ministry work, you have the privilege of being with people in the 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 valleys of, of deep darkness through which they go. And so realities of experience is a hard thing to make sense of. Well, what, what we have, and I think what this article reinforces for us, um, because it is, is consistent with the Ventilian epistemology and eschatology, is that apart from the triune God of the Bible, the Bible of the triune God, we cannot account for the requisites of intelligibility or realities of experience, reality, all the pain and suffering. What are the requisites of, intelli- of intelligibility? Um, well, inductive reasoning upon which science depends, deductive reasoning upon which math depends, the regularity of nature upon which science depends, uh, universals, personhood, objectivity and predication. Do words have meaning? Uh, morality. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so when you're talking with people or preaching to people, as Lloyd-Jones would say, diagnosing them from the pulpit, you're able to operate uh, from a standpoint of biblical certainty and offer them not probability, but Biblical principia, not probability, but solid principia, so that when they're trying to make sense of their sufferings, say in a counseling situation, or as they're hearing a sermon, speak to a need that they have, uh, what we are offering them is absolute certainty, and we're teaching them to account for it. When it comes to apologetics, I deal with this a lot with, with teenagers. Right. I do uh, every every couple of weeks. I do an all come 
Q&A where teenagers can come and it sort of stumped the Bible chump and they can bring anything they want to at me. And so sometimes they'll go on like, you know, BibleDifficulties.com and try to find obscure, you know, apparent contradictions in the Bible. They'll throw those things at me. But sometimes they're coming with really, really personal questions and things that they're that they're struggling with. And oftentimes they will read uh, a tweet or a meme about uh, some aspect of um, of atheism. And, you know, one of the things I do when I teach apologetics, uh, as Nate, I know you do there at the seminary. One of the things that I tell our students at the seminary is as they're taking apologetics classes. You're not taking this class primarily for a grade, though that's important. You're not taking this class primarily for a grade, but so you don't have to be afraid. You have to be afraid of high sounding arguments. You know, Paul says as much, does he not? In second Corinthians, second uh, Corinthians uh, uh, 10, three to six, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage a war according to flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God uh, for pulling down strongholds and demolishing arguments and pretensions set against the knowledge of God, taking captive every thought of the obedience of Christ. And so on the one hand, we are the wrecking crew. And I think it gives our people great comfort in an apologetic or an evangelistic. They got questions about the faith or, you know, they read something that, that, that causes them to, to question their faith. And we can demolish pretensions. We don't demolish people, but we demolish pretensions that keep people in bondage. And so an article like this gives me certainty to be the wrecking crew. On the other hand, right, First Peter 3, 15 and 16, but in your heart set apart Christ the Lord as holy, always be ready to give an apologion, an apologetic, when someone uh, asks you for the logon, the reason for the elpidis that is within you, but this do with uh, Prautatos and Phobu with, with gentleness and fear, a, 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 a fear of that person. I'm going to get to that in just a second, but think about this. An article like this gives a certainty that apologetics is, is first and foremost a matter of lordship, the lordship of Christ in the heart, not the lordship of my autonomous reason or man's neutral reason in the heart. It's a, it's a matter of the lordship of Christ, the resurrected Christ inaugurating and consummating his kingdom. And all of the soteriological and eschatological implications of that have considerable epistemological implications. And so the lordship of Christ in the heart is not just a matter of ethics or morality. It's a matter of epistemology. And an article like this tells us why that's the case and why Reformed theology requires the lordship of Christ from an epistemological standpoint. Uh, It also uh, tells us, as Gaffin says here, uh, it's not just that the heart has its reasons. The heart only has its reasons. You know, in other words, uh, man's knowing and his cognitive, uh, his his cognitive trajectory is grounded in the corruption of his heart, and the and and his need, his desperate need for a soteriological rescue. So we we have the certainty of the lordship of Christ in the heart epistemologically. It is moral. It is epistemological. It's soteriological. It's all those things. We're to give a defense, an apologion. When someone asks for the log on the reason why we have Elpidis hope. So what ultimately are we? We are hope defenders. And I can't be a hope defender with probability. If what I'm giving you when it comes to the gospel in my preaching, in my counseling, etc., as a hope defender is probability, man, I don't know. I'm giving you wishful thinking. But what we have with a reformed confessional apologetic as hope defenders is epistemic certainty. But of course, we're to do it with protetos and phobia, with gentleness and fear. 
Um, so as I said, as apologists, we're the wrecking crew, but we're also the welcoming committee. We're to be both of those things. And I think our people need to be strengthened. They need to see us as ministers and their counselors and their Sunday school teachers and their pastors and so forth. We can wreck pretensions. We don't wreck people, but we can wreck pretensions that keep them in bondage. So we're the wrecking crew. We're also the welcoming committee, wooing them to Christ, because ultimately what we are as apologists are hope defenders. And this article, I would submit, is eminently hopeful, eminently hopeful, because it it dismantles Kant and establishes the best of Kuiper. It dismantles Kant and establishes Kuiper even better than Kuiper expected of himself. You know, when you understand his view of apologetics, and I think we can understand why he viewed apologetics the way he did, given the fact that 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 ultimately apologetic methodology in his day was Thomistic in nature. Um, I think Van Til, you know, obviously builds upon him, but there's a dismantling of Kant and an establishing of Kuiper here, and it gives us the hope of certainty. And to me, as a practicing pastor and evangelist and all that I do in ministry, man, I want to give people certain hope, not wishful thinking, not even a high probability that Christianity is true. Because if if Christianity is highly likely true or highly probably so, then ultimately the epistemic, the 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 epistemic deciding factor is autonomous human reasoning. And that's our problem to begin with. So those are just some some thoughts that I would have in response to that good question. I think it's eminently, eminently uh, useful in the pulpit and in the counseling room and in evangelism and in all that we do. This episode of Word and Spirit was based on a brief biography of Richard B. Gaffin Jr. in Word and Spirit, Selected Writings on Biblical and Systematic Theology by Richard B. Gaffin Jr., edited by David B. Garner and Guy Prentice Waters, published by Westminster Seminary Press and on the Reverend Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., Sancti Libri Theologicus Magnus Westmonasteriensis by Peter A. Lilbach, published in The Ordained Servant. The episode was hosted by Nathan Shannon, produced by Jimmy Atkins and Josh Curry, and engineered by Paul Quirum. This episode was a production of Westminster Media, a publishing and production ministry of Westminster Theological Seminary. If you enjoyed today's episode, please visit wts.edu give to find out how you can support broadcasts like this one in service of Westminster's mission to train specialists in the Bible to proclaim the whole counsel of God for Christ and his global church. Thank you for listening.